0: Tonight I'd like to begin by sharing with you just a few lines from a poem by uh, the great U.S. poet uh, W.S. Merwin, and I think, uh, I believe Merwin uh, just died last year, or maybe the beginning of this year, and it's a poem by him called A River of Bees, and it's about a journey, And it's a journey that takes place in a dream that he's having. So he's having this dream. And there's this, this curiosity about how to navigate our lives, how to at- navigate this activity of living and dying that we're involved in. And in the poem, he's, he's moving from room to room in this house with this question. You know, how do we live our lives? How do we navigate dying? And at the end of the poem, he comes to the door of a room. and this is what he says. He says, "On the door it says, "What to do to survive. But we were not born to survive, only to live." On the door it says what to do to survive, but we were not born to survive, only to live. I so appreciate that, this remembering, oh, I'm not going to survive this. And yet I spend so much time trying to survive it. And it feels different just to live, to truly live. And for me, he's pointed out the importance of, what is it like to, to step out of mere survival into truly living? And yes, of course, surviving can be such a, a beautiful frame. And I want to point out, I'm, I'm using that word differently here. Right? The, the surviving, the surviving that's filled with so much fear and reactivity. That feeling of merely surviving rather than truly living our lives. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. I know that on retreat, I've had those days on long retreat where it feels like I'm just trying to survive. (laughs) I'm lost in all that reactivity. Sounds like you can relate to that. (laughs) I'm not the only one. And not only that, I've had those days in my life where it feels like I'm just trying to survive. Where again, I'm just lost in reactivity. And this is, I feel, the predicament of our troubled yet beautiful world that we live in. All those people out there having those days in life where it feels like they're just trying to survive. They're lost in reactivity, hurting themselves and others and the planet we live on. Here we have it merely surviving rather than truly living our lives in our own experience and in this world around us. And when I reflect on it, I think that's why I feel so close to this practice where it feels like such an honor to be here together with you during this time. Because I think it's this practice that has allowed me to truly begin to live my life. So tonight what I'd like to do is to share with you a gateway into truly living our lives. Rather than merely surviving, rather than merely living a life out of reactivity, out of grasping and aversion and delusion. And it's something that we've already touched upon, which is this, this practice around vedna, the, the second foundation of mindfulness. You could say the second way of establishing mindfulness. Oh, Here's another way that mindfulness can be established through this knowing, through this being aware of vedna. And we have spoken about it. you know, In the first couple of weeks, Carol spoke about it in the morning, of giving us a sense of, Vedna, and then Guy, again spoke about it a little bit more in the, the um, in his talk last night, and then we've touched upon it every so often. So I'm going to uh, just go just to take a few more steps in this this really important piece of our practice because I have found it so liberating and, and so clarifying what this practice is about. And just a reminder, right? Vedana comes in, to, in, in three different flavors, right? It's like you go to the ice cream store, you only get three different flavors. And in terms of uh, the abhidhamma, it's it's known as this universal cetasika. So, universal cetasika is, is it's a, a mind state that um, arises with every moment of uh, of ordinary conscious experience. I think there's there's seven of them, and this is this is one of them. And those three flavors are right, uh, sukkha vedna or uh, um, uh, pleasant vedana. And again, this word sukkha is used differently in different contexts. In this context, it means pleasant, when, when, when the, the flavor of experience is pleasant. Dukkha vedna, and again, that word is used differently in different contexts. In this context, it just means unpleasant, which is a little bit different than the dukkha that we've been talking about of the, the First Noble Truth. And then uh, the third one, and I, I appreciate how it's worded, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, which I find so helpful in my practice. Well, it doesn't really feel pleasant. It's not really unpleasant. Oh, it's, it's neither of those. Neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And the, the word is adukamasuka. Don't you like that? It's such a nice ring to it. <laughs> so it's, it's not unpleasant and it's not pleasant. Neither of those just those three flavors, and becoming sensitive to that. So with every moment of experience. You know, just to cue up those associative links, you might remember, right? Guy rang the bell last night. And that experience of hearing right now, that's contact. So there's that that contact where there's Uh, a sense gate, like a sense organ, like the ear. We have a moment of consciousness. And then a sound, and those three come together, and that's contact. And then that contact is going to have one of those three flavors. What's the flavor there for you? One of the three, right? It's a flavor of some sort. It's different than the flavor of that, isn't it? That might be a little bit different flavor. And as Guy said last night, the, the, the feeling tone, the vedna of, for example, the bell can change depending upon you know, the conditions of that moment. He gave the example of being, for example, the, the bell at the end of a, sink, of, of a sit might sound really pleasant. There's a lot of maybe pain in the body. It could be unpleasant if we know there's going to be the, 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 the trampling of the feet around us. So vedna, how it's situated upon contact. And then what comes after that or the condition that arises from that often, but not always, and this is why it's such a choice point, is craving or reactivity, grasping or aversion or, or delusion. And this is why it's so powerful because it opens up the possibility of fully being with our world, this world of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, without moving into the reactivity of the mind. Right? It's this chance to begin to step out of merely surviving through this reactivity of these flavors, around these flavors of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither of those. And into truly responding, truly being with this world. So what I want to point out is this is such a small turn in our attention. It's easy. Just at the sound of my voice, you can get a sense of what the flavor is. It's turning the attention just a little bit to look at our experience just a little bit differently. And this is where the power is around this. Uh, James Baldwin, the, the great U.S. writer, novelist, he put it so well. He was uh, somebody was interviewing him. This was in 1979. He just come out, just finished his uh, writing his novel, uh, Just Above My Head, in Berkeley. And in this part of the the interview, he was speaking about just navigating the the morality of a world that was false, like this predicament that we find ourselves in, and the predicament that he, in particular, found himself in. In particular, you could say this morality, this false morality that allowed for, really, this expression of greed that took the shape of slavery in this country, and then the subsequent racism that continues to this day. A way of living that upheld that. A false view, and an unskillful view of the world. And he said, the world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter it, even by a millimeter, the way people look at reality, then you can change it. This is what we're doing here through this being aware, being mindful of this this choice point around vedna into reactivity. What a gift to the world to make this difference, to begin to see experience differently, to allow for a world with less reactivity rather than more, to begin to step out of merely surviving into truly living. Stepping out of reactivity and into truly responding. I remember once getting clearer about Vedna and some of my misconceptions around this practice and around this teaching. And it was when I was a a monk. And one of the things in the Zen monastery that I was in is uh, all of us, there's a bunch of young guys who had never really been in the kitchen before and yet all of us had to take a 6-month period and you'd be thrown into the kitchen and you would start cooking for everyone else regardless if you knew how to cook or not <laughs> so it was a it was an interesting experience and there was a, there was a rule that we had to follow which is you couldn't say anything about the food unless you were the head monk so you, you, you also couldn't say, now, now that was a really good meal. Because <laughs> there's the wanting in some kind of way. You just had to eat what was in front of you. And one of my brother monks was in the kitchen. And it felt like every morning he would serve oatmeal with raisins in it. So for me, oatmeal with raisins in it, Is an unpleasant experience. And it was so interesting to see what my mind did around that unpleasant experience. The first few times it was just like, wow, this is, I really don't like this. Into, I wonder if he's doing this to me. (laughs) You know that feeling? I know he's pissed off at me. I know he's one of those passive aggressive guys. He's putting the raisins in the oatmeal because he's pissed off at me i can't believe it you ever have that feeling (laughs) it felt like an assault and the thought in my mind is if i practice well enough then i'll eventually get to the point where raisins in my oatmeal is no longer unpleasant And what I want to point out about that is that thought is a deluded thought. That's not what Vedana is about. We're not practicing to hopefully come to a point in our life where we have more pleasant Vedana rather than unpleasant Vedana or even neither unpleasant or pleasant. And this is a a crucial insight because I'm sure you've already noticed this in your practice There can still be this hope. If I practice well, my experience will become more and more pleasant. You ever notice that? Right? That's how you probably judge your days. You have to admit it because you come into my (laughs) practice meetings and it sounds like that. (laughs) Oh, here's a good day. Wow, it was pleasant. Oh, here's a bad day. It was unpleasant. And this is so important to understand because it gives us a a much more deeper understanding of what freedom's about. I am pretty certain when I reach full awakening, raisins will still be unpleasant in my own meal. (laughs) The only difference is is I won't suffer from it. And hopefully I won't be making the stories that the person who's doing it is being passive-aggressive to me. So can we tach, taste the freedom that's not dependent upon whatever vedna is there? This is such a deep-seated quality of the mind to try to seek happiness through increasing the amount of pleasure in our lives. And it's interesting, even when they've done studies on happiness and well-being, that got to be a very popular way of doing studies, is that there was no strong correlation between happiness and well-being and pleasant experiences. There's other things that it was correlated with. And I want to be clear, it's not like I'm trying to diss pleasant experiences saying that they're bad. It's about how we relate to them. And therefore, how do we relate to unpleasant experiences and neutral experiences? That's where it is, is the freedom with being with the unpleasant, the pleasant and the neutral. It's the same around pleasant experiences. It's just what I find is it's harder to catch, it's harder to feel the hook around pleasant experiences compared to the unpleasant. Like around the unpleasant, the the reactivity is just so clear to feel the pain of that. But I remember this again becoming so poignant for me, the reactivity that gets heaped on to also pleasant vedanta. I was, uh, I was practicing in Burma. I was doing a, a three-month retreat there. And for the midday meal, one of the midday meals, there was a family, It could have been a number of families, that uh, decided to offer ice cream to all the yogis. Chocolate ice cream. Chocolate ice cream is a very pleasant experience for me. Just the, the sight of chocolate ice cream is very pleasant. So here I was with, you know, my plate of white rice and overcooked vegetables and that one scoop of chocolate ice cream. And I thought to myself, thinking it was wisdom, it would be much better for me to eat the ice cream first to honor the donors because it might, you know, melt and this way I could fully savor it. And what was so tragic about it? is that, this really it still kind of tears me up, even to this <laughs> day. <laughs> I wanted it so much that I didn't even taste it. You know that experience? It's like, oh, there's the wanting. And then by the time I was with it, it was gone. There's the complications that happen, even around the pleasant experiences. And this is so tricky. We are biologically designed for pleasant. And the the, the trick is the danger is that it can lead so easily to, to grasping, to frustration and addiction. And it can be so subtle i remember i was doing a long retreat at the the forest refuge during the winter and uh the the end of my retreat was kind of uh, was towards when when spring was just emerging around here and as many of you know it, it's just so beautiful the natural world around here when when spring begins to emerge and i remember walking outside and just feeling that sense of pleasant and the subtlety of leaning, it felt like my body was leaning to try to get more of it. The complication that happens around it. And there it is. There's that whole unfolding I was talking about, contact, something visual. Vedna, pleasant. And then at times it would start to creep into the grasping. And it's the same around neutral experiences. In neutral experiences, it can be, again, more subtle to see that. Often what I notice, like, for example, if the breath is getting quite neutral, the feeling of it, and there's a subtle reactivity, it feels like my attention is just like slipping off the breath into fantasy. It's like it's wanting something else. It's wanting something to entertain it. Have you noticed that? Oh, that's the trickiness. And I think the, the, the powerful thing about just this simple turn, like just seeing the world, just as, as James Baldwin said, just altering it just by a millimeter. Right? It allows for this different relationship to begin to, to begin to emerge. And the cool thing is I don't need to figure out why something is unpleasant or pleasant. Right? I don't have to start to think, did, did my mom force feed raisins to me? Is that the problem with raisins in my oatmeal? What happened to me with raisins in my past? (laughs) And of course, I mean, on a more serious note, there is a place to to reflect on that. There are modalities of healing that I really honor and respect. And at the same time, I find what's so powerful about this practice is just setting that aside so I can just see how, how experience is unfolding. The power is in its simplicity. And I think the, the real curiosity that I have around this practice of, of Vedana is, can you start to get a feeling sense of the difference between something that is filled with unpleasant Vedana, an experience that's filled with unpleasant Vedana, and reactivity? How do those feel different? How can we start to distinguish that in the same around the pleasant? There's a, a teacher by the name of uh, Shinzen Yang, some of you might know him. He's uh, he's quite the nerd. He likes to proudly say that about himself. And of course, being the nerd that he is, that he has these really wonderful mathematical equations around Vedna. The one some of you probably know, and I, I so appreciate it because it's so clear. He says, suffering... It's on one side of the equation. Equals pain times resistance. And it's a clarity about how vedna and our suffering works. So suffering equals pain times resistance. So if we... Let's see if we can put some numbers in here. Let's say you have a pain of 100. Times... You ha- you're resisting that pain of 100 units by 100 units of resistance. So you have a hundred times a hundred equals. I know there's a lot to ask in the middle of a three-month answer. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if, you're, if your mathematical skills are like mine. Equals? Ooh, wow, that's great. I'm so impressed, 10,000. So for those of you who didn't get that answer, it was at 10,000. And if we have the same pain, a pain of a hundred... And, we only, and yet we only have a resistance of 50, how much suffering is there? 5,000. 5, <laughs> <laughs> so it's this clarity of seeing that my suffering is not necessarily dependent upon how much pain. It's dependent upon how much resistance there is around it. Can you notice that? As the same, uh, a similar equation for the pleasant where he says frustration equals pleasure times grasping. Same equation. And I remember uh, my first breakthrough around this where I, the first of, uh, my first experience I think of really getting the feeling difference between The experience of unpleasant Vedana and aversion. It was when I was sitting, sitting in in meditation. I was experiencing a lot of pain. And then having aversion suddenly drop away. It was so interesting. The pain was just as much in the body, but there was no reactivity. And there it was this feeling of okayness. Oh, interesting. That's the difference. I can feel the difference. Oh, this is just unpleasant. It's really unpleasant. Oh, but there's no resistance. There's no suffering here. So I just invite you to clarify that. It's so interesting to get clear about those different experiences around that. And also around the, the pleasant and the neutral. Just this curiosity, this, this curiosity of how this is unfolding, just around the subtle stuff in your experience. This is the beginning to step out of merely surviving, to step out of reactivity, and to step into truly living. This is the beginning of stepping out of greed, hatred, and delusion, and into truly responding. I also find this curiosity around Vedna so helpful for the tough stuff, the tough situations that happen on retreat. I remember one time this happening. This was on a, I was doing a month-long retreat. It was uh, it was a samadhi retreat. And it was in the early morning sit. And I was, I'd been sitting for a while. And it's just like, you, you know this time where the, the mind is starting getting calm and collected, and it was just that sweet space of samadhi beginning to, to emerge. It had kind of a fragility to it, as samadhi can. And as the, the this pleasant experience of samadhi was, was starting to really take hold, um, somebody in the meditation hall began to write in their notebook... <laughs> i'd hear some writing it sounded like it sounded like the loudest pencil in the world so it'd be some writing and then a (laughs) some more writing (laughs) and i was about to lose it and i uh and of course, it was like the perfect conditions for that, because it was like the perfect conditions for self-righteous anger, because, you know, the, the teacher had, had really clarified not to write in the meditation hall, which made my anger even worse, because then I was like, what, what is going on here? <laughs> and when I'm filled with that kind of self-righteous anger, it's like wisdom can come in, the, like I can be deceived by Mara that, that wisdom is speaking to me when really anger is speaking to me. And there's, there was the impulse. Like I thought the wisest thing to do was just to go up and to tap him on the shoulder and like, give him some kind of like sign that this was not cool. <laughs> so there I was, really hooked by really a sound, an unpleasant sound. And I want to go through just the steps that I needed to go through when something was, was this intense. So sometimes when it's that intense, I need to talk to myself a little bit. Because it's like mindfulness is out the window. And I think I said something to myself like, um, Brian, just to notice you're having an emotional breakdown because somebody's (laughs) writing in their journal. (laughs) Like, Just to put that in perspective a little bit. (laughs) So it might be good to see if you can bring your practice to this. It was like kind of getting a a little bit of a reality test here. And then after that, there was a a turn that was in some ways the opposite but important for me, which is the turning into self-compassion. Because if I went down more that road, what my mind does is it tries to minimize my pain. And I don't find that very helpful. What I needed to do was to honor it, to be like, wow, I'm actually having a really hard time. And I care about myself. So to allow the heart to soften. Now I want to point out, it's not like I had to take a lot of time with this. It was just allowing these these quick reflections and allowing them into the heart. And then this I find so important on retreats, which is what I call my... Yes. Uh, Yes, this too is my practice. Here it is. Oh, dukkha, this this is what it's all about. Can I remember that, that this is such an opportunity? Reminds me of this aspiration that's uh, sometimes reflected on in in some Tibetan schools of, of Buddhism which goes, grant that I may be given appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. Wouldn't that be a cool thing to make that your aspiration every day? It's bold, isn't it? It's like, yeah, bring it on. I'm 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 down for this. Like I, I wanna learn. Like I'm passionate about freedom. And I'm willing to learn from this. So that turn was so important. And then I could begin to notice. It was like these were, sometimes you have to put things in place, conditions in place to allow mindfulness to come back. And then I could begin to notice, oh, interesting, unpleasant. Oh, an unpleasant sound. Oh, and there's the aversion. Yep. Oh, there's the tightness in the stomach. There it is. Unpleasant sound and aversion. Interesting. It was like I'm tasting the soup of experience. It's not like I can divide them apart. But it's like, oh, there's 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 the little touch of cayenne that's in the soup. Oh, I can taste that. Oh, there's the thyme in it. Oh, there's these different flavors here. Oh, so it's the distinguishing, being there with it, being with the thoughts that might be still stirred up. And that's all I needed to do was to see. If you alter it just by a millimeter, then you can change the world. And then a a space started to arise around this experience. It wasn't like the aversion at this point decreased. This is really important to hear. It's not like, hey, I'm going to be mindful as long as the aversion decreases. which I call my bargaining mindfulness. (laughs) Like, I'm only going to show up if this gets better. So it better get better. Just to notice. And what happened is, is it felt like there was space, more space around it. I wasn't constricted as much around the unpleasant and aversion. And once there was space, yes, the aversion started to decrease. It didn't completely go away. But then mindfulness was established. There was space around it. I wasn't as hooked by it. So what I want to point out about this example too is it wasn't, I didn't have a need to see this happen in a sequential manner. It's not like there's a moment of contact, a sound, and then after that we notice the unpleasant, and then in time we notice after that the aversion, you don't have to catch it in a linear way. What helps me is to think about you're tasting the soup of experience and you're noticing these conditions, these different flavors in there. That's all it needs. This, is, this opens up a whole different way of being in the world. And I want to be clear, You know, this is a, a, a minor incident that we're looking at. Yes, there are situations in the world where there is conduct that is happening that is incredibly unskillful. I'm not denying that. In situations that, yes, we need to act. This isn't about being a bump on a log, it's about being able to respond rather than to react. Me getting overwhelmed with self righteous anger doesn't help anybody. Something different can emerge when I can start to step out of that. Remember an example of this. This is... Um, sorry, about uh, Ajahn Brahmahamsa, he, he, uh, he... This is a few years ago. He had been invited to a... Uh, a UN-sponsored kind of a Buddhist Theravada gathering in, I think, Vietnam... And so it was a a big deal, this gathering. And for some reason, he had been given to uh, uh, offer a presentation, offer a talk at this presentation. And of course, if you know Ajahn Pramahamsa, he's um, uh, a monastic in Australia, a big proponent of uh, bhikkhuni ordination, the full ordination of women. So he's like, well, I'm going to talk about bhikkhuni ordination. (laughs) And gender equality, he was like, you know, this is one of the tenets of, of the UN is gender equality. So I'm going to go talk about this at the, the conference. It's an important thing for folks to hear about. So he flies over to Vietnam and he gets to the, uh, to the conference and then he's told, you can't give that talk. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know, you can't give that talk in this, this, this Theravada context so he was told he couldn't give the talk, so he flew back to Australia without giving his talk. And uh, he said people kept on asking him, man, you must have been so disappointed and frustrated to put all that work in in, in your talk, and then you weren't able to, to give it. He said, why would I be frustrated? Like, that's how change happens. If you want to see change, especially systemic change, This is what arises when you say things. Why would I be upset about the way change happens? He kept on responding in the world, but he had wisdom about it. He wasn't going to get hooked by it. This is... Stepping out of just mere surviving into truly living stepping out of reactivity in and, and into truly responding it's interesting i uh, I saw him actually it was on the it was a month long retreat uh, at in uh, at spirit rock actually Carol and uh, guy were there Najo bramahhapso was there giving a day long and So it was, I think, during lunch, maybe, or after the midday meal, and paying respects to him, and I think I asked him about this. And he said, you know, it actually turned out to be the greatest thing for this talk, because as a result of his talk being banned, everybody wanted to read it, right? (laughs) So I said, you know, nobody would have read that that paper I, I, I wrote if it hadn't been banned. So it's amazing how things turn out. So navigating the difficult unpleasant, the whole realm of the the unpleasant, but also the pleasant. What is your mind getting hooked by? Whether it be a meditative state, or food, or that cup of tea, or being outside, what is it hooked by around the pleasant? And can you start to clarify simply opening to a pleasant experience rather than grasping it? And I want to point out that it's just as mm-hmm. difficult around the pleasant as the unpleasant. Yet sometimes we don't see it. Our hooks around how we relate to pleasant experience can be so challenging. You know, The, the poet Alison Litterman puts it well in one of her poems, this poem called Confessing to Happiness. She says... I'm scared to confess to happiness. Isn't that a great first line? Something so true about it? I'm actually scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness because I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. We have difficulty truly opening to the pleasant and sometimes the happiness and contentment that arises around pleasant experiences. It can be difficult, isn't it, to simply rest in wanting what you have in this moment. We can be challenged to truly confess to it. We, we complicate it through our merely surviving and our reactivity. So this is a skill to begin to open. And sometimes there's a physiological significant to, significance to us and to, to this. And I, I, I think I mentioned this earlier on, that sometimes there's, there's this habitual tendency that happens in our physiology, that it gets set up that we only feel safe when our systems are a little bit on guard, a little bit hypervigilant. where there's that activation just a little bit in the system. And you might have noticed this. And then when we start to calm and feel tranquil and at ease with this moment, there's something in the system that says, No, we can't trust that. There's something scary about it. Because the last time I let down like that, I got hurt. Man, I don't know if I can trust this. And of course, we can intellectually understand that, but we need to begin to allow our bodies to learn to settle. to Very gently, right, to allow it to know that it's, it's okay to let down, that it's actually safe to feel tranquil and calm and peaceful. To step out of that survival mode. Stepping out of reactivity. And stepping into truly living our lives. A few other kind of dimensions of vedana is sometimes the way I track it is also the stories my mind creates around experience. So sometimes I'm not catching like, oh, there's the aversion, but sometimes it's through the story or the world that gets created. We're seeing this most poignantly. I was in Flagstaff, and it was Flagstaff, Arizona, where I live, and. I was out for a walk and it was during election season. And I remember walking by the house and in front of the house there was the sign of um, the person who I really didn't want to win the election. (laughs) And it was like in a moment I already knew the people who were living in that house and the kind of people that were living in that house. I actually didn't even know if people were living in that house. <laughs> and yet it felt like I knew. Right? An unpleasant experience. I don't need to change that unpleasant experience. It's not the idea, oh, if I was fully awake, this wouldn't be unpleasant for me. That's not the practice we're doing. Oh, there's the reactivity. Right? Anger, hatred. So quickly, just to notice that, the stories that we create around this. Where is that line where it's just unpleasant, just pleasant, just neutral? And when is there grasping? When, is the, when there's the delusion where the mind is slipping away from the neutral? When is there aversion? How do you feel the difference of that? I remember becoming curious about this. This might be a little strange, but you know, you get curious about really weird things, maybe on retreat. And I was doing a really long sit. It was like a mid-morning sitting meditation. I'd come uh, really quite early to a sit and I would sit a long time and then um, towards the end of the sit, I really needed to pee. (laughs) And that urge, you know, there was the urge to need to pee. And then the bell rang. And I want to point out what was so interesting is to notice that it was just an unpleasant sensation and there was an urge. And for me, the feeling of a biological urge feels different than reactivity. Right? The Buddha, I'm sure the Buddha needed to pee at times. <laughs> he had that biological urge. How can you feel the difference between a biological urge And reactivity, how do they feel different for you? Where's the emergence of suffering? And where is it just the body doing its thing? And then there was the shift. The bell rang, and then there was that feeling of like, maybe if I just try to mindfully walk just a little more quickly, I'll still look like I'm walking slowly. Do you know this one? And get in front of everyone else before... The bathroom, so I can get there first. And there was there was the plan. There was the the grasping, having this curiosity around Vedna. Again, I feel like this is what transforms our world. If you alter it just by a millimeter, then then you can change the world. May our practice around Vedna lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. Just sit for a few moments here.